For I was envious, there we go, I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore his people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, How does God know, and is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease they have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure, and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me, and afterward, receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Father, when we are weak, you are shown to be strong. Father, you have commanded those who will preach your word to be ready in season and out. So, Father, we come to you, I come to you this morning in dependence upon you. May your word speak, Father. May your word reach into the hearts and minds of us, your people, your sheep, and may it accomplish good things for us today, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. I keep coming back to this psalm and have been recently because I think the experience of Asaph as he is describing it in this psalm is something that we can all understand. Asaph is a man who knew much about God but when it came to understanding the implications of what he knew he struggled. Augustine's confessions are widely considered to be the first 
autobiography. And that's true as far as a you know, kind of book-length treatment goes. Right? Augustine's confessions are essentially a, a description of his spiritual life, his conversion, his relationship with God. It comes in the form of prayer. But before that, there was very little that was written from the first-person perspective. People didn't write about me. <laughs> Let me tell you about me. There wasn't a lot of that. We have that in the Psalms. We have that certainly here in Psalm 73. We have an account of a man who was struggling to understand what he saw around him in the world in the light of what he knew about God. What does he know about God? He knows that God is good and he knows that God is just. The problem for Asaph came into play when he considered these attributes of God and then drew improper implications from them. If God is just, he thought, then sin ought to be dealt with immediately. If God is just, I ought to be able to see the connection between the actions and attitudes of the wicked and the consequences of their sin. And so, when he did not see that connection, he struggled. He didn't know what to make of it. As we, we, we come to this, this psalm, you know, one, uh, uh, one, one preacher, uh, George Swinnick, an old Puritan divided it up this way. The first half, he said, is the godly man's trial. And the second half is the godly man's triumph. And I think that's exactly right. Let's look at his trial. He begins well, doesn't he? Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. What a wonderful statement. God is good to Israel. God is good to his people. And there is no doubt about it. Surely this is true. But that's where Asaph gets into trouble. He knows that this first statement he has made is true, but he has a problem he has great difficulty trying to take what he knows to be true and seeing it in his own experience. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but as for me, as for me, I'm not sure that's so true. William Cooper was a great poet and hymn writer. Um, he was a part of John Newton's uh, congregation, and wrote a hymnal with John Newton. You'll 
know John Newton. He's the author of Amazing Grace. William Cooper is the author of uh, another, well, many hymns, but one in particular, uh, God Works in Mysterious Ways. And he struggled a great deal throughout his life. He, he struggled with depression. He, he, he struggled with assurance. He knew theologically who God is, what God has done, what God does for his people. He believed the doctrines of grace, and he believed particularly in the doctrine of perseverance, God's preservation of his people. But when that depression would overwhelm him, he would write to Newton, and he would say, yeah, I believe all of this, and it is true for everyone but me. He saw himself as the lone exclusion to God's grace. And you see something like that happening here. God's good to his people, but as for me, I'm not quite so sure. Well, what was his struggle? He says, he describes it this way, My feet came close to stumbling, my steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. We often ask the question, why do good people suffer? Now, the real answer to that is there are no good people. The only good person who has ever suffered is Jesus Christ. That's it. But turn it around. Why do wicked people prosper? That's the real question. And that's the question that was giving Asaph such trouble. He looks around and he sees the wicked prospering. He sees them doing well. And he sees them doing so well that he begins to see things improperly. See, the reality is that the wicked are just like the righteous. They're human beings. They get sick. They lose money in the stock market. They, you know, bad things happen to to, to wicked people as they happen to everybody else. But he lost perspective as he's looking at this because he's, he's feeling this oppression coming from the wicked to him. And he can't see straight anymore. And so he says things like what we find here in this first paragraph of the psalm. There are no pains in their death and their body is fat. Now, here's where we really see how things have changed. In Asaph's day, if you were fat, that was a really good thing. <laughs> uh, you're, that means you're prosperous. You've got a lot of food. There's, there's no problem here. You don't have to work for a living, so you're not going to burn off the calories if you're fat, that's, that's a positive. And there are no pains in their death. They are not in trouble like other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. 
Well, none of that is true. I'm sure there are some wicked people who, you know, die in their sleep. Well, there are good people who die in their sleep, too. And there are wicked people who suffer unto death, just like everybody else. They are not in trouble as other men. They are not plagued like mankind. You see, he's putting the wicked into this separate category, somehow outside of mankind. There's mankind, and then there's the wicked. And nothing bad ever happens to the wicked. Well, that's just not realistic, and that's not true. But that's what he had talked himself into because of his own struggles with what he sees around him. All he sees are these wicked men strutting around. They wear pride like a necklace, he says. This is what prominent people did in that day. They'd wear these, like rappers, I guess. They'd they'd wear these big chains uh, around their neck. And you would would see by that their their position of, of authority or status within the community. You'd see their wealth by how they, they dressed. Their, and and it, was a, a, it was an outward display of their pride. As they wore these kinds of things, they were wearing their pride. And they were violent men. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. What they do, how they think, how they speak, it's all a reflection of their wickedness. And nothing ever happens to them. No consequence ever comes upon them. And this this is just throwing Asaph into turmoil because it's not what he expects. If God is just, something should be done. This isn't right. This isn't just. These wicked people should be dealt with. And instead, they strut around in their pride, saying, verse 11, How does God know? And is their knowledge with the Most High? They say, the wicked say this. The wicked are saying, I know I'm wicked. And I know all of these things I'm doing, all of these things I'm saying, all of these things I'm thinking are deserving of judgment if we lived in a just universe. And yet, here I am. And nothing's happening to me. I'm just going along, doing my wicked business, and I'm perfectly fine. So God must not know. Or God must not care. 
How does God know? Is there knowledge with the Most High? Asaph imagines that even the wicked are agreeing with him. That they deserve justice and they're not getting it. Asaph is distraught over that. He imagines the wicked to be laughing about it. That's the problem. He sums this up in verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked. And always at ease, they have increased in wealth. Always at ease. Have you ever noticed when we get into a mindset like this, everything becomes absolute? Everything is absolute and universal. They're always like this. Nothing bad ever happens to them. And if we were to step back, and if we were able for the moment to pull ourselves out of that mindset, then we might be able to understand that that's not true, that doesn't make any sense. If we're in our right mind, but we allow ourselves to be taken over by our own experience so that that's all we can see. And that was Asaph's situation. Now, of course, he's not looking at all of this from the perspective of an outsider, someone who is not affected. He's not just some objective observer of what's going on. Rather, this is impacting him personally because Asaph is a man who has sought to be righteous. He's a man who has pursued holiness. And now he's seeing what he considers to be injustice in regard to his own life. These people are pursuing wickedness and they prosper. I'm pursuing holiness and look what's happening to me. I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. So all I have done, he says, seems to have been in vain. I have pursued holiness. I've tried to keep my heart pure. I have washed my hands in innocence. And yet, I'm the one who's getting stepped on. I'm the one who is paying the price. I'm the one who has been stricken. And there you have it again, that, 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 that kind of universal, absolute, all-or-nothing thinking. How long has he been stricken? All day long. It's not even just, you know, every day at some point I feel like I've been stricken. It's not, it's all day. Every morning I am chastened. This just goes on and on and on and on. So this is the problem that he's finding. This is the the trial of this godly man. He's trying to put together the reality of what he sees in the world. The wicked are prospering. That is a problem. Now, he, he exaggerates that. 
He paints an unrealistic picture of what that means, but the problem is there. It's a very real problem. Wicked people sometimes do prosper. What do we do with that if God is just, if God is holy? That is a problem. And we need to try to understand that. Because God has revealed himself in that way. Those are his attributes. That is who he is. So why aren't the wicked dealt with? Why don't they sin and then the lightning comes? Lightning bolt comes, thunder follows. How come it doesn't work like that? Now as Asaph is writing this, He's looking back over this experience. As we're going to see, he has, by the time he writes this psalm, he's come out of that. So he's looking back at a previous struggle. He's looking back at what he used to think and what he did and what he said. And as he does that, he is grateful that he said no more than he did. Look at what he says in verse 15, If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Brothers and sisters, we need to be so careful. If we don't understand something, we need to strive for greater understanding. But if we start spouting off about things that we don't understand making declarations about things we don't understand, we can do damage. And Asaph is expressing now, having come out of this and looking back, he's expressing gratitude that he kept his mouth shut about his own struggles at that point. Not that he couldn't have gone to someone and asked for help with those struggles, He's grateful. He just didn't go around saying, I can't believe what's happening. What's God doing? I don't even know if I can believe in God anymore. He understands how that kind of thing can affect others. I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So he didn't do that. He didn't go spout off. He didn't make declarations about things he didn't understand. He knew that there had to be some answer to this. And so he was pondering this. And it continued for some time, he says. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. He didn't come to an answer right away. We don't know how long this struggle lasts, but it clearly was some time. And it occupied his mind. And he didn't, he couldn't rest until this was all brought to some kind of conclusion. And so he pondered this. He he meditated upon it. He thought about it. And he couldn't come to any answer. Because as we said, he was drawing wrong implications and wrong applications 
from that which he did know to be true. We can do that, you know. We've got to be careful with that. We come to Scripture. Lots of things in Scripture we know. Scripture is very clear. God has given us a word that we can understand. It's possible to understand what God has said and then draw improper applications from what he has said. That's what he was doing. And the answer did not come to him while he simply pondered the question. In other words, the answer was not going to be found inside him. It's what the world wants you to think. It's what the world tells you all the time. The answer's within you. No, it's not. It's not. Lots of wrong answers are within you, but not the right ones. This is why God has revealed himself to us. We need answers that we don't naturally have. Why? Paul says it's because the natural man can't understand spiritual things. Well, this is true of Asaph. He's pondering this, and what was the end result of his meditations upon the question? It was just more trouble. It was troublesome in my sight. And then we come to verse 17, and here's the turning point in the, in, in, in the psalm. This is the hinge. This is where we move from this godly man's trial to this godly man's triumph. How does he get from one to the other? He says, it was troublesome in my sight until I came in to the sanctuary of God. And that's when things changed. Why? Because when you come into the sanctuary of God, you're not coming in to look at what's already inside you. You're coming into the sanctuary of God to receive something that you don't already have. It's in the sanctuary of God that he's going to find godly counsel. It's in the sanctuary of God that he's going to find godly teachers. It's in the sanctuary of God that he is going to find the word of God. And that's why when he comes into the sanctuary of God, everything changes. Everything changes. Now, the way he looks at the problem changes. It's there that he finds answers. And this is what he goes on to say throughout the rest of the, the psalm. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, he was troubled until then. He was seeing himself as stricken and chastened until he comes into the sanctuary of God. And then what happens? Then he takes another look at the situation and finds that his perception has changed. I came into the sanctuary of God, and then I perceived their end. He's looking at the same people. He's looking at the wicked. But now he sees something different. He doesn't see men. 
who have everything going for them. He doesn't see men who are entirely and completely prosperous with no issues and no problems, men who seem like they never will have any problems. He perceives now their end. He perceives that there is a wider time frame to God's judgment than he was considering. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they, are utter, how they are destroyed in a moment, they are utterly swept away by sudden terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. Now I want you to notice a couple of things and the change that has taken place. First, you remember what the psalmist said up in verse 2, As for me, my feet came close to stumbling, my steps had almost slipped. But in verse 18, now that his perspective has changed, who are the ones who are slipping? It's the wicked. Asaph says, Lord, you have set their feet in slippery places, not mine. The feet of the people of God are set on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. It is the feet of the wicked which are on slippery places. Note too, in this first section of the psalm, there are no pains in their death. Their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. That's all in the present tense. But when you come down to the second part of the psalm, and his perspective has been changed through coming into the sanctuary, now he's speaking in future tense. Verse 20, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. He's beginning to understand that the judgment and the justice of God is not confined to this life. To the present. There is a future for the wicked. God doesn't necessarily have to destroy the wicked now. He will destroy them later. God's justice will be done one way or another. And so he takes a second look at the wicked, and he sees something completely different than he did. Now, when you come to verse 21 through 24, what does he do? He takes a second look at himself. No longer is he looking at, at, at his own life and saying, woe is me. He goes back and says, that's how I was, past tense, when my heart was embittered and I was pierced within. Then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. That's what I was. That's how I viewed myself. And that's how I was behaving. I was behaving instinctually. I wasn't behaving 
I wasn't acting upon the truth which I knew. I saw what I thought was unjust, and I just responded. But now everything has changed. That's what it was. I was like a beast. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me, and afterward, receive me to glory. So, don't miss this. When he was going through the struggle, God was still with him. God had hold of him. And God had a purpose in his struggle. And when it was God's time, God took him by the right hand. And guided him with his counsel. And now Asaph is looking forward to the future. Not because the wicked are going to be judged. That's not his focus anymore. Did you notice that? He's not concerned about them anymore. God's going to do what he will do with the wicked. Asaph is focused upon his own relationship with God. Afterward, you will receive me to glory. That's the way the Christian lives. That's the way we deal with things we don't understand. That's the way we deal with the world around us when we see injustice, when we see horrible things taking place. We are able to rest in the promise that when all of this is done, God will receive us to glory. This is not all there is. We have a glorious future waiting for us. And you see the complete turnaround that has taken place in Asaph, when you come to this last paragraph of the psalm, just wonderful statements, not only of faith, but of love and devotion to God. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. He is now content. He is at peace. He's no longer in turmoil. God is his treasure. And he is no longer concerned with the fact that wealthy people may live prosperous lives. He's he's perfectly willing to let God deal with the wicked. As long as he has God. That's all he wants. I desire nothing on earth if I've got you. What an amazing, wonderful window into the heart of this godly man. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever.
I don't need anything else. God is my portion. He's all I could ask for. He's all I could want. He supplies me with everything I need. He sustains me in every respect. I need nothing but him. Those who are far from you, Lord, they will perish. You've destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. I don't have to worry about that anymore. I don't have to struggle to understand anything. They're your responsibility, not mine. I'm just going to love you. I'm going to rest in you. Because I know you are faithful. I know you are just. You're going to do what is right, whether I know what is right, whether I understand what is right. I'm leaving that to you. All I want is you. Because for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge. In vain, well, let's start back up, go back up to verse 2. As for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. Verse 13, in vain I have kept my heart pure, washed my hands in innocence, been stricken all day long, chastened every morning. All of this is troublesome in my sight. And by the time he's finished, I have made the Lord God my refuge. None of the rest of it matters. There is one more thing, though, isn't there? There's a purpose. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Asaph has just told you why he wrote this psalm. It is Asaph telling of all of God's works, of what God had done in his life. To bring him to this place. You begin with a man who is suffering. A man in utter turmoil. A man who can't get through the day without that kind of anxiety that comes from from a lack of understanding. Of thinking that perhaps God is being unjust. Seeing this unjust world around him. And you end up. With a man who wants nothing other than to declare the glorious works of God. This is the life that we want, isn't it? As the people of God. Not to live every day in anxiety. Worrying about things that are outside of our control. But knowing who God is and trusting in him. And having gotten to that place. Then declaring to whoever will listen. That God is a glorious God. And God does glorious things. There is no deficiency in him. There is no injustice in him. This is the God that we serve. And he is a glorious God. And he enables us to live these kinds of lives. 
And it doesn't come from understanding everything. It comes from trusting. I don't have to understand everything about God, which is a very good thing because I can't. I'm not capable of it. God is so far beyond me. But he has graciously given us his word so we can certainly understand what he has revealed to us. And having understood that much and having come into a relationship with him, being his child and he being my God, I can now live day by day in peace and contentment and joy looking for the glorious hope that day when he will receive me to glory. Don't you want that? Don't you want that? If you want that, stop chasing the world. Stop worrying about what's going on out there. Cultivate your relationship with Christ. Draw close to God through him. That's the only way to get there. Asaph learned that. And he learned it in a difficult way. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. We have this psalm to tell us. Do what Asaph did and do it now. Don't waste your time in anxiety and, 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 and terror and, and, and confusion. Just pursue God. Come into the sanctuary of God. Come among his people. Come under his word. Spend time with him in prayer. Know him. And that kind of peace and contentment and joy will be yours. Father, thank you. What great and precious promises. Father, what a wonderful example. We come to your word and, and we see men and women in your word. And they are not portrayed for us as perfect people who have no problems. We see their struggles and we know, Father, that they experience the same kinds of things that we did. That we do. So, Father, we pray that we would learn from this psalm. And that as we pursue you in the way that Asaph did, that we would experience the kind of relationship that he describes here. Father, may we have nothing on earth but you. May you be the strength of our hearts and our portions forever. May your nearness be our good. May we make you our refuge, that we may tell of all your works. Make it so, Father, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.